Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God, for the richness of this treasure, for you preserving it through all these generations that we can still have it today in this hour and read the Word of God and be impacted by it, that it's alive and active a double-edged sword. And so we ask you tonight, would you anoint your word as we read it and study it in Jesus' name? Amen. Tonight, the book of Revelation session is entitled Overview of the Millennial Kingdom. And what we're going to do in this session, it really is just an overview. And I don't even know that that's even a a fair uh, statement. It might even be an overview of part of the millennial kingdom. We're going to spend uh, a number of sessions talking about the millennial kingdom. That's the thousand year reign of Christ when Jesus physically comes back to the planet and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. And then after that, it gets even cooler, but we're just going to focus on that thousand years for right now. When he comes back, there are a ton of details. This is a, uh, one of the most Um, probably the subject in uh, the Bible related to eschatology that has the most information on it. Uh, I would think probably right after that would be the harlot Babylon. But this subject has got tremendous amount of information in our Bibles about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and the kingdom that he's going to rule and reign here on the earth. What does it look like? And so we're going to spend some time, not just tonight, but in some future sessions, um, kind of mining some of the details uh, of this uh, glorious subject. But before we dive in, I want to give us even a little bit of context uh, that will kind of set us up for not only tonight's session, but the upcoming ones. A little bit of context for this millennial kingdom that Jesus is about to start He starts off with a heaping ruin of a planet. It's kind of the absolute worst way to get started. You you would always hope that if you're going to take over a business, that the guy before you got the systems in order and, you know, left it in good shape. This business called Planet Earth is a heaping, smoldering mess. It is in such bad condition. Uh, nothing, it has never been this bad ever. Even the flood wasn't a mess. It was just wiped clean. This is way worse as far as the state of the earth. It is way worse than the flood. This is a really, really bad situation. And that's just how Jesus likes it. He is not afraid of messy things. Praise the lamb. Yeah. We're all living testimonies that he is not afraid of messy things. And it's almost like this is a proverb of just how messy he's willing to take on. I promise you, however jacked up you are, you are no worse off than the planet at the day one of the millennium. And so Jesus is making a prophetic statement. If I can take that, I can take you too. And so uh, we're going to look at some of what is being, uh, some of the, the backdrop, because the whole context of the millennium is the renewal of all things. It just so happens that this renewal of all things is taking place at the planet's absolute low point because it's right after the Great Tribulation and all the difficulties that were experienced there. Just want to read you this passage in Acts chapter 3. He would send Jesus Christ, who is preached to you before, whom heaven must receive 
until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. There is a coming time that is referred to as the restoration of all things. And, you know, right now, in the world's current context, there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of things that are bad. There's a lot of things that need to get cleaned up and, and such. It is unfathomable to us to really imagine the extent of renewal of all things while there is currently so many things working appropriately, working at least a little bit, working even if subpar, at least functional. We're talking about Jesus inheriting a planet that doesn't have any of that working for it. And so there's going to be a renewal, not just of all the things that could be renewed right now, but also all the things that are existent right now that won't be existent at the end of the Great Tribulation. Those things are also going to need to be renewed. So it's a big statement, the renewal of all things. Let's look at, kind of strategically here a little bit, one uh, concept at a time. When we say that the earth is in a, in a bad way, what is the starting condition of the planet? Let's go kind of category by category first. Governments have been toppled. When you don't have functional government, you have anarchy. When you don't have a functioning government, you don't have infrastructure. You don't have a way to get things moving and a way things to happen. <clears throat> there are several passages that describe all the kings of the earth being slaughtered by Jesus at the end of the age. All of them. So if they're the leader of a nation, at the end of this thing, all the leaders of the nations are going to be wicked. All of them. And while they're wicked, they're going to be slain. And then that's going to leave not just them, but their whole cabinets, their whole leadership teams is going to leave the national, the, the international national structures. I mean, the whole globe, all this, the nations, all of their structures are going to be in shambles. Those countries will have toppled. And so there's going to be significant lack there. That's going to be a real problem. A bad government can be made better. No government has to be reinvented. And so there's no government in place when Jesus takes over. That's a really interesting starting point. I gave you there uh, several verses. All of these points, I gave you a bunch of verses for you to go and do some homework on your own if any of these are interesting points to you. And each of these should be interesting to you. These are profound aspects of the millennial kingdom. Next, most of the cities of the earth will have been destroyed physically through all sorts of disasters and comets and giant hailstones that are 100 pounds and... Uh, you know, all the infighting in cities and just uh, most of the cities will be gone. Look at uh, Isaiah 24. All joyful sounds are banished from the earth. So the context here is the earth. It's not one area. The context is the earth. Then it says the city is left in ruins. So now we're talking about the city of the earth or, or at least one city of the earth. But then it says, so it will be on the earth and among the nations so now it's talking about cities among the nations. Now what's the parable? What's the, so it will be like what? It will be as when an olive tree is beaten or when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. The idea is an olive tree is beaten to get all the olives out of it so that there's no olives left. And by the time you're done beating that olive tree, yeah, there's probably a few of those suckers that just wouldn't let go. But the idea is it's like, one out of a hundred, one out of 200 olives that are left, all the rest of them have been beaten out of the tree. 
You wouldn't leave them up there. That's your produce. That's your crop. They'll just go, uh, you know, go to waste. So the idea is after the olive harvest or after the gleanings out in the fields, and there's, there's nothing left. There's like almost nothing left. That's the description of how many cities are going to be left on the planet after the, the, uh, the Great Tribulation events. That's really troubling. This is the planet Jesus is going to inherit. He doesn't inherit it as it is now. He beats the snot out of it first. And then he says, that's the planet I want. Now where you guys aren't leaning on your own strength and I can start over and there was a lot of stuff I needed to wipe out anyway. Most of the cities will be destroyed. That also, in connection to that, not only, most of the food sources will be eliminated. Food sources, you need food. And most of them are going to have been destroyed. I gave you a one, uh, I gave you several verses, but one of them I wrote down just because I think it helps capture at least the, uh, the vegetation side of things and also whatever animals happen to be living out where there's green grass. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. When all the green grass is burned up, that also means all the corn on the cobs were burned up. That also means, you know, all, all the tomatoes and potatoes and whatever atos, they're all burned up. Gardens and everything else. That's a tremendous amount of food source, food supply that has been eliminated just in that one judgment. And there's tons of judgments that are going to deal with that. Drought and famine will cause a significant impact on the food sources of the earth. This is the planet Jesus is returning to. So you want to get an idea when it says Jesus is coming to restore all things, you want to get a picture of the fullness of what that all things is actually referring to. War will have ravished the whole earth. Look at this uh, verse in Daniel. Again, I gave you several verses. Earth is consumed by war. The people of the ruler who will come, it's talking about the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. War is going to continue until the end. You know, we see right now the conflict with Ukraine and Russia. And we very much want for the Ukrainians to be protected and for Russia to stop invading. We want that war to end. When, if, how that war ends, another one will begin. We are in a season now where if there is ever any break, it's going to be a shorter break and shorter break because eventually we're going to hit a point where war is going to start and it absolutely will not stop until the second coming of Jesus. It's a real problem because war destroys the earth. War, when a tank shoots, you know, it's whatever, artillery, it blows stuff up and the thing that it blows up is now no longer there anymore. When that same tank drives across a road, it tears up the road. There's just, you know, and then the guy is fighting and everything else, <laughs> bombs and missiles and subs and everything else, war is going to cause desolation. It's going to destroy the earth in tremendous ways. This is the earth that Jesus is going to come back to. It's the earth that's been in war, in constant global conflicts for probably a couple of decades. I'm just assuming the time frame. I don't know. But quite some time, war will continue. That's a problem. That causes destruction. The world's topography will be drastically altered. Topography, the ups and downs, the, the hills and the slopes, where the water is, where, you know, where the tree line goes to, all these different things. The topography will be massively impacted by 10 different factors. 
But I just gave you one that is one of the most overt of the many, and that is every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. A planet where the mountains are gone. A version of the planet where the islands have all fled away. They are no longer findable. They've either joined the land or something has occurred to those islands. They're no longer out there where they were. It's really troubling. Very different. You're talking about Jesus coming back to a planet that will look very different than the one you and I know right now. And there will be bodies everywhere. That is a tremendously, uh, that's a tremendous hurdle for Jesus's millennial government to start off with is to have the dead all over. You know, we don't want to talk about it because it's gross, but dead stink. The stench of death, especially a human. I mean, I, I've not smelt that, but I have heard it's the absolute worst stench imaginable for the human nostrils to take in. The planet will be filled. Look at this verse, Jeremiah 25, 33. At that time, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be mourned or gathered or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. Jesus, happy birthday. Here's your planet. Oh my gosh. This is the planet that Jesus returns to. The one with all these problems and a hundred more. So when we say the start of the millennial kingdom, we want to have a right, ass, uh, right thought process. We want to smile about that, but we also want to cringe a little bit because we want to recognize that beginning point of the millennial kingdom is of such incredible despair from where the planet is currently. You tracking with me? So when we say millennial kingdom, don't forget the context first. Okay, moving along. One of the subjects we've covered a little bit, kind of here and there throughout this uh, study, we've had to reference it, is the resistors or the survivors. This is the group of people that God is going to start the millennial kingdom with at the beginning of the next age. Now, the way that the Bible describes this group is frequently, they are called the survivors or those who are left or those who will remain, depending on your translation. Here's the idea. They got through the great tribulation. They survived. And they didn't get raptured because they didn't know Jesus. And they didn't get killed by some judgment. And they also didn't get executed because they didn't take the mark of the beast. This is a very small group. But it's the group that is referred to as those that survived. And then you see all the promises related to these survivors. God starts using them to do stuff. He starts rebooting the millennial government or, or the, the government on the earth. He reboots it with this group called the survivors. Now, I want you to read these verses because this is the interpretive key to understanding the millennium. I'm going to say that again. I want to make sure you understand this. If you want to understand the thousand-year reign of Christ, you have to understand this group exists or the millennium doesn't make any sense. Because you're reading passages and you're like, wait, why is that guy doing that? He wouldn't do that. He has a resurrected body. Why is he doing that? Because that guy doesn't have a resurrected body. These people do. 
And these people, the ones that have Jesus in their life, we've already given our life to the Lord. When Jesus comes back, we're taken up to meet him and we receive a resurrected body. But that doesn't happen for those that have the mark of the beast. And it also doesn't happen for the very small group of those that survive. Those that survive are the interpretive key to understanding the millennium because so many Bible passages talk about the millennium and a group of people doing very normal human stuff. In fact, it's so lame and so boring and so normal, you just go, well, that doesn't sound like any fun. I thought we were going to have a resurrected body. You will. This isn't describing you. It's describing those that make it through the great tribulation. Again, let's say it's 1% of the human race. They make it through the great tribulation having not given their lives to Jesus and having not worshiped the beast, a very small group. But 1% of humanity is still millions and millions and millions of people. That's not a terrible place to start over. If you got a few million people, whatever the number is. So I want you to read the passages because I want you to get this in your foundation. It's really important that you understand who are these, the survivors, because they show up again and again. Look, I gave you a bunch of verses there, but we'll just read three of them. Zechariah 14, then the survivors from all the nations that attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This makes it sound like they're saved now. But if they're saved now, why didn't they get a resurrected body? Because they weren't saved when Jesus came back. They were the survivors of all the nations that went to go attack Jerusalem. They saw Jesus sitting on his throne a few days later, a week later, whatever, and they said, okay, I'm in. He's real, he's God. Let's worship him now. Those are the survivors. Next verse, Jeremiah 31. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert, and I will give rest to Israel. Ezekiel 7, top of page 3. Outside is the sword. Inside are plague and famine. Those in the country will die by the sword, and those in the city will be devoured by, flame, uh, by famine and plague. All who survive and escape will be in the mountains, moaning like doves of the valleys, each because of his sins. Did you notice that? They're moaning because of their sins. It's repentance. It's repentance that was ushered in by the judgments of God. But at this point, it, they've survived. They've survived the judgments. They've survived all the death and the judgments. They've, just, they've survived the 21 judgment events of the book of Revelation that we've been reading. And it's causing them in that context to moan and to repent and to go, we need Jesus. Okay. So let's read just a little bit about who these are because it's important that we not only understand that they are survivors, but what are they about? What do they do? What's their life like? What are some of the Bible verses that talk about what they do? First, they are non-resurrected people. They are just like you right now. When Jesus comes, you get a resurrected body if you love Jesus. But those that survive don't get a resurrected body. They don't know Jesus. They will give themselves to Jesus in the next age, just like you gave yourself to Jesus in this age. At one point, you were born lost. You didn't know the Lord. And at some point, hopefully, you gave your life to the Lord. If you haven't done that yet, do that tonight. Stop listening to me. Talk to Jesus and give your life to Jesus. You don't need an altar call. Just talk to Jesus right now and give your life to Jesus. But for those who have given their life to Jesus, when he comes, 
we will receive a resurrected body. But those that have survived, they didn't love Jesus. They don't get raptured, but they do get the chance to repent and they will. All of them, 100% of them will get saved. We know that for a number of reasons, one of which Revelation 13, 8 tells us that everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, everyone will worship the devil. Everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will take the mark of the beast and will worship the Antichrist and will worship the dragon. But if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you just haven't gotten around to doing it yet, you're one of these survivors but you will be saved, okay? So Jesus even knows which category and all that, but not only that, if for some miraculous chance, you know, you, you're one of those people that survived this whole thing, you're gonna look at your options and go, the devil is real and he's also been locked up and thrown in prison. Jesus is real, boy howdy is Jesus real. And not only that, he's in charge and yeah, there he is. And you're going to go, I'm a total idiot if I don't give my life to this man who's in charge. And they're all going to give their life to this man who's in charge. That may not carry over 100% to all of their offspring, but it will at least land with the initial group that survives the Great Tribulation and winds up in the next age. They will all be saved. Next, they'll live in literal houses, just like we do now. Only... The system will be far better because right now you've got all these government entities and all these different players that are, you know, greedy and this and that. Under Jesus's leadership, <clears throat> everybody will be dwelling in houses in the next age. So that's pretty awesome, especially for those that are like, man, it's been a hard knock life around here with the current housing market to try to get anything done. <laughs> so praise the Lord. Jesus will be in charge. He'll fix it. He'll, get, he'll work it all out says right here, my people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. That sounds like a lot better house than some of us grew up in, huh? There will be beautiful realities to these homes. Not just the aesthetics, but the peace of God resting on them. I just want to point out the fact that people live in homes. In the next age, people will live in homes. Pretty simple. And they will do literal work. The survivors will have jobs and their work will 100% be congruent with the purposes of Jesus during the millennial kingdom. Right now, I would just go as far as to say some giant percentage. I don't know the number. I, I'm not smart. Some giant percentage of people's jobs right now are in disagreement with the purposes of God. Not just them in the wrong field, but the existence of that field at all. There are lots of people in jobs right now that Jesus would not give them a thumbs up to. In the next age, 100% of humanity will only have jobs that are not only okay with Jesus, they were designed by Jesus' government and orchestration in order to be congruent with his millennial purposes. Everything will be building, connected, his purposes for the whole thousand years. So the, the job satisfaction in the next age will be way higher, okay? All right, I gave you some verses there. They'll do agriculture. Look at this. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us, but Isaiah 65, 21, they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Now, a bunch of these verses that I'm giving you, you'd have to go look at the context to see that they're millennial passages. 
I would encourage you, don't believe me. Go look at the passages so that you can say it on your own and see it. I happen to know because I did the homework, but I would rather you not believe me. Go look at the passages and see it for yourself. They will do agriculture. They'll, they'll plant vineyards. Look at the next one. <coughs> Isaiah 32, 20. How blessed you will be sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. Ezekiel 34, 27. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. This is talking about all the agriculture that's going to be taking place. It's going to be a significant part. I'm not going to say it's half of what's happening. But it's going to be a significant part of what goes on in the millennial kingdom is a bunch of agriculture. And people are going to be employed to do those jobs. Jesus isn't going to just snap his finger and all of a sudden, you know, the corn stops, starts popping out of the ground. He's going to have people sow it into the ground, till the soil first, prepare it, water it, all the stuff. And they will eat. Praise the Lord. The millennial kingdom is filled with eating. I gave you a bunch of uh, verses here, uh, but I just want to uh, put here, I'm going to read you Ezekiel 36. It's the second verse that I actually wrote out. I'll save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful, and I will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field. God says, I will tell the tree bigger fruit and more of them. That's really cool. I will increase the fruit of the tree and the crop of the field that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. From that time on, there will no longer be famine. There will be God's blessing, resting and touching. Now I say that there is one verse that says, if you don't go up to the Feast of Tabernacles every year, you're going to get famine. So just make sure that we encourage everybody to go do that because that's one surefire way to get famine and drought is to not go celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. They'll also fast. I just want to remind you that the Bible is the Bible is the Bible. The word of God will be only truer in the next age and the ages to come. We're not going to get to the second coming of Jesus and go, oh, good, we don't need that Bible anymore. We're going to read the Bible, and it's going to make so much more sense. We're going to read the Bible, and we're going to go, oh, there's layers here that were always there, but we had no grid work for. There were layers there that we had no contextual way to be able to understand, and they'll make even more sense. I just give you the Sermon on the Mount, which describes the thought process for a believer that says, when you fast describing the concept of fasting. Fasting will be part of life for the millennialites, those that survive and then all their offspring, those that live in the millennium, they will fast. But more than that Matthew uh, Sermon on the Mount fasting, they're actually told there are specific fasts that will be celebrated every year. Look what it says here in Zechariah 8. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. These are corporate fasts that will be declared. It won't just be the individual fasting. That will also be part of the millennial kingdom. They'll start living long lives. 
And we've looked at this, uh, well, we've more or less just referenced it, but I wanted to give you some verses on it. This is talking about those that are going to be alive on the earth. They're going to eat, they're going to live in homes, they're going to work. They're also going to live really long times. This is such a fascinating idea to get lost in. Read with me Isaiah 65. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days. It'll never happen again. The ending of abortion will be over. There will be no such thing as infanticide. There will be no such thing as a baby that dies early because of natural causes, whatever that would be. It won't happen anymore. No longer will that be the case. Under Jesus' leadership, he says, no, we're getting rid of that. That doesn't exist in the natural and it doesn't exist on my watch through the supernatural means. It will never happen again. Or an old man who doesn't live out his years. Old people are going to get really old. They're going to get to get really old. They're not going to get kind of old and then die. They're going to get really, really old. He says, I love old, old people. They're my favorite. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. If you don't make it to a hundred years old in that time frame, it's because you ain't living right. And that's part, actually, that verse helps interpret a little bit about the thought process of those in the millennial kingdom that will be born and choose not to follow Jesus and choose not to enter into the fullness of his covenants and the fullness of his promises. So this kind of thing will exist, but it's going to exist in very interesting, specific scenarios. They will have many children. We just read that, but keep going. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a blessed people by the Lord and their descendants with them. Those in the millennium will have kids and kids and kids, and then those kids will have kids and kids and kids and those kids and kids and kids. Isaiah 66, 22 describes... The descendants enduring. <clears throat> so those that are born in the millennium, they'll get married, they'll have kids, and their kids, and their kids, and their kids, the descendancy of that lineage will endure. It won't just be that they'll have kids and then the family line will end. There will be uh, enduring lineage in the descendants of those that are born in the millennium. Another cool detail, they will prosper economically. Under Jesus' leadership, again, one of the things that he's going to do is he's going he's to work against systems that oppress. He won't allow them. You know, right now, the reason that there is oppression is because humans are in charge and humans got issues. Well, when Jesus, who's fully human and also fully God and also love, kindness, truth, and the way... When that guy's in charge, oppression, injustice goes away, including inequality, including poverty. All these things, they won't exist anymore. Under Jesus' leadership, the millennial earth will prosper economically. He'll know just how to make the trades and everything work and everybody wind up ahead at the end. It won't be winners and losers. It'll be winners and bigger winners. 
There'll just be prosperity under his leadership because he knows how to orchestrate all those things. Right now, the reason that there's all those issues is because of human issues, human failure, because I'm not smart enough to figure out what trade to make on, you know, E-Trade. If I was just smart enough, I'd know which trade to make. You know, if, if, if everything worked out well, no one would cheat each other and, and we'd be able to, you know, get some things done. Well, under Jesus' leadership, all those things are going to be working very differently than they do now. Let me give you a few more broad strokes of the millennial reign and millennial activity. Now these, there's just really no way to do in a, in a what, 35 minute, you know, intro. There's no way to give all of the nuances of the millennial kingdom. It's too vast. This is a vast subject. To give you an idea, there's a 14 part Bible course out in the lobby that could easily be five Bible courses. That one could easily be five. And it's 14 sessions on the millennium only. It's on the millennium. And it could easily be five. That's what I'm talking about. There's a ton of information on this subject. So the reason I say that, broad strokes, it's like the broadest of broad strokes and probably not even a good job of that. There will be uh, tranquil relationships in nature. Another dynamic of what life will look like under Jesus' leadership is it says this, Isaiah 11, 6, top of page 6, the wolf will live with the lammy. Wolfie and lammy are friends now. The leopard will lie down with the goat instead of eating the goat's face off. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, they're all hanging out. And a little child will lead them. Would you let your one and a half year old hold the, you know, the reign of a lion? You know, like he's, he's got a little leash on the lion or he's pulling on the mane. Bad idea, right? Not in the millennial kingdom. That lion will not eat that kid. That lion will be rewired because under Jesus' leadership, the animals are going to respond differently. Not just people, the animals, everything, the environment, everything responds differently. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. Here, vipey, vipey. And there'll be no repercussions because the way that the Lord is going to even impact nature is going to so be different in the millennial kingdom under Jesus' reign. I gave you a few more verses. One of the subjects that we're going to look at, we'll probably spend a whole session on it, is the leadership of Christ in the next age. We're not really giving much uh, thought to that right now, but I just wanted to give you this uh, verse in Revelation 12. So give birth to a son, a male, who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is going to rule the nations. He's going to actually rule them. He's going to actually be in charge. It's a significant piece of the millennial kingdom. Also, heaven will be close to earth. We've been kind of referencing that a little bit, but you just got to recognize how different that is than life right now. You have never once looked up with your natural eyes and seen heaven hovering over the planet. That is exactly what you will see during the millennial kingdom. Heaven will come close to the earth and will be invisible in, in eyesight of the earth. He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, a little bit of a fact check. Uh, I believe it was in the Q&A time last week, and I, I think I gave the right answer, but I didn't have any Bible verses for it. And so I found some Bible verses. The demonic realm will be bound in a complete way. Two different groups. First, we've got uh, Isaiah 24 
is dealing with the principalities. And then Revelation 18 is dealing with the low-level demonic forces that are on the earth. So let me just give you two, okay? The principalities are the big ones, all right? And then you got the low-level demons, the stuff that Jesus was casting out and that we cast out today. Both those are two different groups. And last week, the question came up, where are they? What, what happens to them? Are they still running around on the earth? Revel I'm sorry, Isaiah 24 tells us about the big ones. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and will be punished after many days. The moon will be abashed. The sun of shame for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before its elders gloriously. Just wanted to give you the context. That is when Jesus is ruling in Jerusalem. He says he's going to bind up two different groups. He's going to herd them together. And it says they're going to be punished after many days. That many days, by the way, is the thousand years. They are going to be punished after the thousand year reign. So they're going to be uh, put in a dungeon, same dungeon that Satan is in. And then after the millennial kingdom, they're going to be really punished. They're going to be thrown into the lake of fire like Satan's thrown into the lake of fire. That's dealing with the big demons. But look what it says about the smaller ones. I mean, if, if you needed a distinction. Revelation 18.2. He cried out mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. This is describing the starting point of the millennium, which it's going to be Babylon on the earth. If you don't understand that point, just know that Hell has to have a physical representation on earth during the millennium, and it's actually going to be the area of Babylon, okay, and Edom. And so it's going to be a place where all the demons, every one of them, is bound. So during the millennial kingdom, there will not be the influence of any level of demon, whether small, medium, or high, or Satan himself. Next, there's still going to be weather. I mean, I know that doesn't surprise us, but there's verses that talk about there's still going to be weather. There's going to be entire regions of the earth left uninhabited for specific purposes. I gave you a handful of those in part F on page seven, but I just want to give you the, the clear point. There's going to be restricted areas, area 51s of here on earth where Jesus has set aside certain areas and he said, no one can dwell there. In fact, no one can dwell there forever. No one can go there forever. And the period starts during the millennium. So there's actually going to be no-no zones on the earth that Jesus has, has marked off. Everybody's going to know where they are. And it says not just no one should go there. It's saying no one will go there. And when, when Jesus says no one should or no one will, no one should means you could and you shouldn't. No one will means no one will. So there's going to be places where no one will go during the millennial kingdom. And then the last point that I just want to point out, it's, again, I don't know if this last section was really in a great order. I just, I'm trying to throw out some ideas because we're trying to paint a big picture of the millennial kingdom, and it's going to take us a little bit of work. It's going to take us a few sessions to get there. But the last one I wanted to point out, homes for the resurrected are being built in heaven. Homes for those with natural bodies will be built on the earth. So home, it'll all be dependent on what kind of body you got. If you've got a resurrected body, your home will be in heaven, though you will have dynamic responsibilities on the earth. 
If you have a non-resurrected body, which again, that's those survivors and their descendants, then their home will be on the earth. Though interestingly enough, they will have some limited interaction with heaven. So there's a really cool crossover there of both parties. Okay, a lot of information. Let's break up into groups. Luke, how many groups we got tonight? Four groups of eight. And who are my group leaders? All right. Andy, you're back there. Caitlin, why don't you come over here? Luke, can I, uh, Fredenberg, can I get you to move over here? Luke Cooper's there. All right. So groups of eight. Go ahead and get into groups, have a conversation, and uh, we'll see you guys back here in a few for discussion or for Q&A. Yeah. So uh, the question is, related to the survivors, how do we know that they'll all be saved? You know, kind of, you know, talk through that a little bit. So um, the descriptions you, you even see here um, in a couple of the verses that I uh, wrote out for you, talking about what the lives of those that survive are going to do. Now, it's important to make a distinction between those that survive and the kids of those that survive. A kid is born into a different uh, um, experiment, <laughs> if you will. The one that survives watched Satan take over the planet, watched their best friend worship the Antichrist, and their other best friend get raptured. <laughs> okay, I mean, so the ones that survived were living in the moment of the transition of the age, but their kid that's born 20 years later, 10 years later, their kid is only hearing stories of the second coming of Christ. All they've ever known is there he is. He's here. He came back when he was gone. And they don't, they don't have any frame of reference for that. So the storyline and what they're experiencing is a very different uh, scenario. Now, the, uh, the subject of the Lamb's Book of Life, I think, is the strongest point, though it's not the only one. Again, you've got a bunch of verses that talk about the survivors going to Jerusalem to worship Jesus. So it's like, that's survivor, not survivor kid. That's an important detail, okay? It says the survivors are going to Jerusalem to worship Jesus. Well, that means they, they give it up to Jesus, okay? But I think that the point of the... Uh, uh, the, the Lamb's Book of Life, I think, is the strongest point, um, and that is the, the way that the Lamb's Book of Life is described, and there's not a ton of Bible verses on this subject, just so that you know, but the way that it's described is names are written already, and so this then comes into the whole concept of free will versus predestination. It's actually very simple. God knows what you will choose. He does not make you choose it. He knows what you will choose. It would be impossible for you to do something that would shock him. I cannot believe they took a left at that stoplight. I thought for sure they were going right. It's impossible to confuse, befuddle, or surprise him. Okay? So he knows what's going to happen before it happens. And the names of those that will choose him, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's not predestination. It's the fact that they've, they've God already knows what's going to happen. Okay? So... When it comes to this subject of the ones that are in the millennium, how we know that all of them will give their life to the Lord is their names are already written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so they would not, uh, they, the decision, they, God already knows. God already knows they're going to do it. So it's just a, a kindness. Um, but also, it's, all, it, it's a kindness that we would know that ahead of time, but it's also a very understandable byproduct of the great tribulation and surviving it. I mean, 
it is a, it's actually far more unthinkable to think someone would come out of the Great Tribulation still swinging, going, no, I'm not worshiping Jesus, even though I know he's Jesus and he's nice and he just made everything great. I'm not doing it because I just want to be different. It's like that is actually of, of a more unreasonable thought process once all the facts are there. And you see then they've survived, they've watched their best friend get raptured and realized, oh no, I've been a pew sitter, but I didn't really know the man. You know what I mean? They've watched it, ha- it's, the, the facts are before them in the most profound way. And so they're all gonna give their life to the Lord. And so, uh, but again, there's, there's a number of other uh, points that could be made. I just think that's the strongest one. Um, so great question. Okay, over here. All right, so in the next age, will the... Uh, Will the language barrier be removed or will there be some supernatural way uh, to, you know, fix the whole, you've got however many languages on the planet right now. Most of those languages, well, actually, I think all of them. I think the Lord cares about every tribe, tongue, and language. So I think every language will be uh, uh, retained. So the question is, what about the language barriers? Um, Initially, just looking at just the natural process of things, One, Jesus has got a plan to fix it. But that will not be supernaturally undone in a moment. Infrastructure will have to be put into place. Uh, Languages will need to be taught. Inventions will need to be made. But I mean, like right now, you've got Google Translate on your phone. Now, the phone systems will be down. Most of the phones will be destroyed. Google Translate is not going to work day one of the millennium. But Jesus' version of Google Translate will work infinitely better five years in. Made up number. I don't know. It's going to take him a minute, 100 years. I don't know how long it's going to take him, but Jesus's version of Google Translate will be epic. And, you know, is that going to be part of an implant or whatever? I'll just say this. The stigma on technology and the, oh, it could be the mark of the beast will be over. So if Jesus thinks it's a good idea to put chips in every part of your body in order for you to have upgrades, you know, well, for those that are in millennium, my point is it'll be a non-issue. Jesus has got a plan. That plan will not happen perfectly, 100% enacted day one. Nothing will. Everything is gradual. It's a restoring of things. And so, uh, so while the, uh, the issues will be dealt with eventually, nothing will be satisfactorily dealt with day one or even year one. The reason the, thousand, the millennial reign of Jesus is a thousand years is it's going to take that long to get everything where Jesus wants it. And so who knows where and how long it takes for the, the, uh, you know, the, the Babelfish or Google Translate or whatever else to, to get kind of caught up in Jesus' you know, network and really be awesome and be the thing that he always had in his heart. But you can better believe it's important to Jesus that people know how to, tra- uh, how to communicate to each other. And uh, it's also really cool that he's going to know all the languages. So you just know right now when there's somebody in some far off country worshiping in their language, Jesus isn't confused about the worship. Like, what are they saying? He knows exactly what they're saying, okay? So we've got at least one universal translator, uh, a protocol droid, number one, Jesus Christ on the earth. He will be able to translate every single language. He can help, and then no doubt with technology and all of his infrastructure, that will only continue to uh, be, you know, uh, multiplied for others to be able to learn, have access, all those different things. So great question. Day one, it's gonna be, hyper confusing because you've got all these people and they've got blood on their face 
and they've got recent death in all their family members and all this stuff, and they're scattered all throughout the earth, and their cities are all blown up. It is going to be the most massive, insane moment in need of a savior. You know, before Jesus came to save sins, we've got multi or save us from sins. We've got the majority of the Bible references to salvation in your Bible actually aren't dealing with spiritual salvation. They're dealing with physically being delivered from a bad guy, saved. God is a savior. He's a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Those, those thought processes, those were long before there was spiritual salvation as a primary thought process related to God and savior. They were thinking of God save us from these enemies as well as our spiritual needs. My reason, my point with that is Jesus will really get to be savior in that day when he is saving everybody from everything. I mean, there's going to be so much hot mess to be uh, worked through and, and um, yeah. All right, here. People are wicked. Uh, so if Satan is locked away, the demons are locked away, why are people still sinning? How are people still sinning? You know, if, if the tempter is locked up, you know, how does all that work? The word of God says there is no one good, no, not one. And it is in reference to human beings, and it's regardless of Satan. <laughs> Leave Satan out of it. There is no one good, no, not one righteous. This is the state of the fallen, the, the fallen state of man, the sinful state of man. And so there are times in this life where you are being tempted by, you know, some you know, uh, demonic force. That happens. But more often than not, your own carnal desires are tempting you. More often than a demon getting involved to, you know, really prompt you to do something stupid, you yourself are doing something stupid of your own choosing. You didn't need a demon to help you get there because you're a carnal fallen person that even with the Holy Spirit living in you, you are still prone to sin. Paul the apostle says, oh, body of death says, I don't do what I want to do. The things I want to do, I don't do. These are realities about the state of man, and that doesn't change until the resurrection. And so what happens during the millennium? It's a lot easier to not be stupid, and people will still be stupid. And there's a justice system. There's a penal system in the millennium. There are consequences for sins. There's consequences for omission of God's purposes, for ignoring his plans, ignoring his voice. There will be consequences. It just so happens that it will be greatly reduced. But greatly reduced doesn't mean non-existent. So excellent question. Yes. Yeah. So uh, uh, say Mark 9. Matthew 9. So Matthew 9, 15 talks about uh, Jesus uh, answering the, uh, the it's John the Baptist guys that come up and ask him. And they say, Jesus, we're fasting. Why aren't your guys fasting? And Jesus says, I'm with them. A time is coming when the bride will be taken away, and then they will mourn. Then they will fast. And so the question is, how does that relate to what's happening here as we read on page four, that they will fast, that these fasts are in place? Um, so it's a great question because these two things, uh, if, if you only knew one of these two things, you would be tempted to think that the other wasn't real or true, but the two overlap. And so here's my best answer to that. Um, there is a, a measure of, uh, of nearness that we feel when we fast 
that as long as we don't have resurrected bodies, there's that's a reality. That's a that's a uh, a fact that occurs, and 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 so one of the reasons that we fast, the way that is being described in Matthew chapter nine, is for intimacy, for longing, for nearness, to have our spirits awakened. It actually is part of the antidote to the last question, and that is the sinful nature. It's actually to deny the flesh in order to cause the spirit to soar. All of those things are still going to be at work in, the, in those who have natural bodies during the reign of Jesus on the earth. So his physical presence won't remedy that scenario. His physical presence on the earth won't fix that. What his physical presence for those that have received a resurrected body will do is it will transform their lowly bodies to be like his resurrected body. That's what we're told. And so the fact that we can see verses like Zechariah 8 that talks about fasts being kept during the millennial period and potentially beyond, we don't exactly know, but fasts being kept during the millennial period means that God's not done with it. It means that they do have a place in the millennial kingdom on earth, even in spite of Matthew chapter nine. Now, here's the last point I'll make, worship team, you can come on up. It's important when you read your Bible and you discover two things that seem opposing that you rectify them instead of throwing one out. Throwing one out is always wrong rectifying. How do both of these things exist simultaneously? Because they do. So if you find a, if you find a this and you find a that, you need to figure out how those two things work together because God is not schizophrenic. He has not decided to go this way today. And you know, a hundred years later, he writes something different. He's like, I don't, I'm not that way anymore. That's a law, by the way. That's a law. That is the character of Allah. He writes this and then later he writes this. And the two things are not congruent because he's a demon. Okay. But that is not Jehovah. That is not our God. And so when our God writes something in the word, you want to work to try to rectify those things. And it's really pretty simple. You just go, here's how you start off. This is true. It's the Bible. This is true. It's the Bible. Now, not does one of these things negate the other. That's impossible. The question is, how do both of these two things exist at the same time? And typically it's something as simple as, they're two sides of the same coin. It's two aspects of what's happening at the same time. They don't have to be pitted against each other for both to be true, uh, operating at the same time. It's a very important Bible principle that you're going to need your whole life through is understanding the Bible cannot contradict itself because it's God. So God's, he's not confused, all right? He, but I think he writes in those little things as parables, as little provoking moments to us to get us to dig so that we'll look at two ideas and we'll go, you wrote both. You said both. You're about both. How do both operate at the same time? Because this is a bit mysterious to me at a first read. Okay, great questions tonight. Okay, Father, we ask you continue to help us to understand our Bibles and to go deeper in eschatology and in the book of Revelation. We pray in Jesus' name. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.